0: Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Christian Atheist. This week, Lead Pastor David Fossil asks, What's the strangest, craziest thing you've ever done for money? As we continue the series, we look at whether or not we're economic atheists. Listen, as Pastor Dave gives us some pointers on how what we do with our money Demonstrates our faith. Just one clarification earlier in the service, uh, Joy said that
1: today was going to be a stripped down service. I want to tell you that that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. Okay, so that's just first clarification. If you have a Bible and you grabbed it on the back, you got somebody like, ooh. Uh, Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke 18, page 742. If you grabbed the Bible on the back table, uh, I want to ask you guys a quick question. What's the strangest, craziest thing you've ever done for money? What's the strangest, craziest thing you've ever done for money? And I want, don't want you to answer this out loud because there are some freaks. There are some freaks here. Vince Matthews turn screen. Chris Bradshaw. I don't want to know what you've done. Okay. Just think about what is it the craziest thing you've done for money? True story. Did you hear about this guy in New Zealand that tried to smuggle? Um, gecko lizards out of New Zealand into Europe. You hear about this guy? There's nothing necessarily strange in and of that fact. People have tried to smuggle all kinds of things for quite some time. Um, The reason he did it is because you, in the black market in Europe, um, you can sell a gecko lizard for $2,800. So he tried to smuggle 44 gecko lizards out of New Zealand into Europe. Now, that's not strange. What's strange is how he did it. He decided to smuggle all 44 gecko lizards by putting them in his underwear. Now, I'm a dude. And there's not one guy here that thought to themselves, now that's a good idea. No one thought that, right? Uh, Can you imagine this guy going through customs? I think that's probably why they knew he had the gecko lizards in there. That's how he got caught, right? You know what? One of the strangest things that I've ever heard people do with their money is this. Uh, It's when they trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. They trust God for their eternal soul and what's going to happen to them, but then they're unwilling to trust God with their money. That's one of the strangest things I've ever heard about because it doesn't make sense. You can't connect the dots. As we continue on our series, um, this morning we're going to talk about whether we're economic atheists or not. Now, some people get all kind of freaky when we talk about money. You don't have to do. Treat this the same as you treated worry and you treated actions the last two, three weeks. And just let God speak to you. We want to make sure that we, don't, we aren't the kind of people that say one thing but then live our lives completely different in a different area of our life. And today, the topic's going to be... Finances Now, if you're one of those people that can turn in your Bibles real quickly, uh, we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. Now, the story of the rich young ruler is found in two passages that I'm going to look at this morning, Luke chapter 18, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew. But we're going to start in Luke 18, and then we'll go to Matthew. Same story. There's a couple words there that help clarify it just a little bit better. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the screen. It starts off, verse 18, Luke chapter 18. Here's what we read. A certain ruler asked him, Asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, before we actually get into the text, let's talk about the title of the story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Would you agree that those three words generally describe what we value in our culture? Those three words, I mean, think about it. He was a ruler. The, The word there literally means he was a civil magistrate. He was in charge. He was boss. He was at the top of the organizational chart. That is something that is valued in our culture to be, to be in charge, right? He was a ruler. He was young. The Greek word used there means that he was in his 20s or early 30s. He was energetic and he was fit and he looked sexy. He wasn't losing his hair. He didn't have a big gut. He had his whole life ahead of him. He was young. Our, our culture values young. And booyah, he also had cash. A guy was loaded. He was rich. Now, you and I may be here. We look at those three words. That may not necessarily describe all of us. Not all of us necessarily look at that last word. We, we don't have a job necessarily where we're boss. I'm not a ruler. Uh, you know, we're not in our 20s or 30s, most of us. Some of you are, but, you know, most of us, it doesn't look like that, so that doesn't qualify. But make absolutely no mistake about the last one. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us is wealthy. Now, every once in a while, I have given you statistics or information to help put in perspective how blessed you and I really are. And today, let me, let me give you another illustration that I've, I've discovered to try and help you understand that. To do this, what you need to do is use your imagination a little bit. I need you to pretend that the world's population gets reduced to 100 people. Basically, these two sections right here. There's about 100 chairs or so, give or take. So the whole world's population is, 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 is this group right here, 100 people. Now, if that were true, let me just give you some interesting facts about what it would look like. If the world's population was reduced to 100, that would mean that 70 of, these, of this group don't know Jesus. We still got a big job ahead of us. That's why we do what we do. 70 out of 100 in the world don't know Jesus. 30 of them are white. White is not the majority. It's the minority. Okay? 51 are women. 70 of the 100 cannot read. Now, here comes the statistics related to wealth. Here comes the first one. 80 of this group, 80 out of 100, live in substandard housing. You go, what is substandard housing? It means that 80 of you live in a house that doesn't have one of three things. It doesn't have a roof. It doesn't have running water or it doesn't have electricity. Think about what we do when PG&E, there's a blackout, and we don't have electricity for like an hour and a half. What's going on? What are you going to do? I want to watch the game. Hour and a half, we freak out. 80% of the world's population live with, without one of those three. Now, the next one starts to get real serious, because... 50 of the 100. In other words, this entire section right here of the world's population are malnourished. This doesn't mean that they don't like the food that they eat. It means that they don't have enough food. And here's what makes it worse. One out of the 50 is under the age of 10 and is dying right now because of malnourishment. Now, 6 of the 100... One, two, three, four, five, six. These six right here, oh, it's just a story, dude, man. It's just a story. Okay? Six out of 100 own 50% of the entire world's wealth, and you all live in the United States of America. Now, I don't say this to you to make you feel guilty. You've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. If quite the opposite, you should feel blessed and fortunate we get to live in this wonderful country and we get to have the things that we have. That's great. But it does beg a question. Is it legitimate for the mother and father of the 10-year-old who is dying of malnourishment, do they have a right to ask those of us who are wealthy, can you help me out? Can you help me out because my 10-year-old doesn't have long to live? I would like to suggest yes. Yes. My my guess is that most of us here has a garbage disposal. My guess, whether you're in a rental or not, most of us here have a garbage disposal. Question, when's the last time you put garbage in your garbage disposal? I don't put garbage in my garbage disposal. You know what I put in there? Food I don't want to eat anymore. You know how that conversation goes, right? I talk to Sandy and I go, Sandy, I've had spaghetti three times as leftovers this week. I don't want any more. I'm putting the rest in the garbage disposal. Now, I'm going to take a wild guess, but my guess is that those 50 who are malnourished would love to have what you and I put in our garbage disposal. What do you think? If you still don't believe me, the average person in the world lives on $2 a day. If you make $35,000 or more, you are in the top 75% of wage earners in the entire world. You may not be a ruler. You may not be young. But make no mistake about it, every single one of us in this room is wealthy beyond what we could ever imagine compared to the rest of the world. Now, going back to the text, God asks us, as wealthy individuals, and this young man, a very interesting question. Larry, let's put the slide back up there. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks an honest, sincere, very important question. How do I get saved? Now, he is not trying to test Jesus like the Pharisees did. He, he just he really wants to know. But within the very question, I need you to realize that there's a, there's a flaw in, in, in his assumption. The flaw is that he believes that salvation is performance-based. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What are the actions I need to do? Give me a checklist. There's got to be a checklist of things I've got to do. There's a flaw in his thinking. But before Jesus actually even tries to answer him, he actually takes him on a tangent. And he begins to talk about something not really related to the original question. And he goes, you know what? Why do you, why do you call me good? But don't you realize that only, only God is good? Only God is good. Now, this is God taking a moment to try and get to the man's soul and get him to think and reflect. Man, I need you to connect the dots. You just called me good. I'm telling you only God is good. Connect the dots. Think. Think, man. Think. Connect the dots. Who do you really think I am? And Jesus asked this rich young ruler the same question he asks every one of us today. What am I to you? Am I merely a good teacher that dispenses practical advice on how to have stress-free living and a nice marriage? Or am I the creator of the universe, God himself? Who am I to you? Because the rest of the question doesn't really matter until you solve those two. Who am I to you? Jesus eventually gets to trying to answer the question, and so in verse 20... And verse 21, he says this to the young man. He, he says, you know, do you know the commandments? You know, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother. What is he doing? He's going down to the Ten Commandments. He got through five out of the ten. And the guy interrupts him. And he goes, yeah, you know, all of these I have kept since I was a little boy. Is it just me or does this sound a little presumptuous? Yeah, you know, I've never missed youth group, I'm in four or five Bible studies during the week, I'm always at church, I'm serving, I go down the rescue mission and volunteer. I got it all. I, ever since I was a little boy, I've done all the commandments. Really? Well, aren't you lucky? Now, if you're one of those ones that like to flip quickly, I want you now to go to Matthew. Matthew 19. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to put it up on the screen. But Matthew 19, same story, but there is language in Matthew 19 that makes it even more explicit about what Jesus does and how he answers this question. So Matthew 19, you'll see the title there in verse 16. It says the rich young man. Same story. Verse 23, Jesus uh, answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Have you guys ever heard me, another pastor, uh, our student pastor Terrence, Linda, uh, vacation Bible school, Sunday school teacher, TV evangelist on TV, have you ever heard anyone say something like this, there's only one way to heaven? Have you ever heard that? Most of us have probably heard that. My uh, My bad. There's actually two. Either option A, you can place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, proving that he was the Son of God by raising from the dead. Option A, or option B, all you need to do is be perfect. Perfect. You see, Jesus basically says, okay, to this young man, you want to operate under the assumption that there's a checklist of things you can do, that that salvation is performance-based? I'll go there with you. All you have to do is be perfect. That's all you got to do. So you can either have option A or option B. Now, instinctively, we all know no one can do option B. That's why you go to option A. That's why we say there's only one way. But Jesus plays along with them. Okay, if you're going to do a performance-based salvation, you've got to do all the Ten Commandments, and the first thing you're going to need to work on is your wallet. Is your wallet. Because you are missing it big time there. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The question is, 20 minutes from now, 25 minutes when you leave this room, how will you go away? Will you go away sad? Will you go away upset? Will you go away saying, I can't believe he said that? Or will you go away allowing God the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart? How will you go away? Do you know why this young man says this? He says it because he's an economic atheist. He says one thing about God, but when it comes to his finances, he's going to live completely different. What makes you an economic atheist? If you want to follow on your study guide, there's five things that uh, make you or make me an economic atheist. I'm an economic atheist when I value money more than I value God. I'm more interested in building my financial portfolio than I am in investing in God's kingdom. That makes me an economic atheist. I'm an economic atheist when my self-esteem is based upon my possessions. Now, now here's how this works. Um, This starts by a, a, a general feeling of lack of contentment. In other words, I'm not content with what I drive. I'm not content with my TV. I'm not content with the countertop on my on my kitchen. I'm not content with what we've done uh, in, in the bathrooms. I'm not content with the kind of vacation that I take. I'm not content with the kind of jeans I wear. I'm just not content. I want something different. I want something more. It starts there. Then it's an unwillingness to live within your budget. You see, your budget is not my budget. And it's different than someone else's budget. We all have a budget. It's all a box and it's all different. But so many of us live in a society thinking, well, I don't want my budget. I want someone else's budget. And so we have this unwillingness to live outside of our budget. Then you add to that a general uh, attitude, first generation that has this major attitude of entitlement. Here's how that works. I want the kind of TV my dad has. I want the kind of truck my dad has. I want the kind of vacation they have. We don't realize or think that it's taken them 25 years of working to get it. No, I want it right now. So the last step, I'm willing to live outside of my mains, buy unnecessary items on credit that are absolutely not a smart way to live. That is when your self-esteem is based upon your possessions. And it makes us economic atheists. I'm an economic atheist when my security is based upon my self-worth. Just be honest. I'm in my 40s. If you get to your 40s or 50s, you really start thinking about retirement years. Question. Is the, is, is the security of your retirement years based upon the fact that Jesus is alive and working in you, or is it based upon the health of your 401k retirement plan? Just be honest. I'm an economic atheist when my stuff is my stuff. We don't think of ourselves as managers of God's possessions. We think of ourselves as accumulators of possessions. It's mine. It's no one else's. I'm an economic atheist when I'm unwilling to tithe and give generously. Once a year, typically at Bay Hills, we have an honest discussion about tithing, what it is and what it means. Lucky for you, today's that day. Turn to the person next to you and say, lucky for you, today's that day. Some of you are like, oh no, 20 more minutes of this, right? Actually, I hope that you see yourself as fortunate. It certainly is something we need to work on because less than 10% of us have figured this out. Less than 10% of us as followers of Jesus Christ are doing this. Okay, let me just start it out right at the beginning and try and help you understand what this is and why it's significant. What is a tithe? You can write this down. It's not in your study guide if you want. A tithe is when you bring the first 10% of your income to the storehouse. You bring your first 10% of your income to the storehouse. Now, let's talk about the words that are highlighted and bolded. Let me help you understand them. That first word is very important. It's not I give my tithe. No, it's you bring your tithe. It's very subtle, but it's very important. It talks to the implication of who is the owner of it. You see, if I'm giving it, then I own it. If I'm bringing it, I'm just returning it. This is big, and we make big mistakes in churches sometimes at the end of the service when we say this, Now, the ushers are going to come forward and take your offering. And some of us are like, No, they're not. No one's taking nothing from me. And it's incorrect language. The offering is a time to receive the offering. It's a time to bring the tithes. It's not the time to, to take anything or for me to give anything. No, it's not mine in the first place. That language is important. The first 10%. Why so important? In fact, some theologians say that the word first is more important than percentage. Because your tithe and offering, more than anything else, is an act of Faith. What God does not want you to do is this. I'm going to pay my rent or mortgage. I'm going to take care of the car payment. Then I'm going to pay for, the, pay, pay for the groceries. i got the cable bill. i got a couple school loans and everything. And then, depending on how much I have when it's left over, then I'll give to God. Then it's not faith whatsoever. It's tipping. It's what you do at a restaurant. But we're not at a restaurant. This is church. And it's based upon your faith and my faith. He says, whatever you do, at the very least, start first. Whatever you do, start first. It's what Sandy and I do. It's the first thing we do the beginning of every month. It's the first check. Her combined income, my combined income together, 10% right off the top comes to this ministry, this church right here. The first 10%. Why 10%? Actually, I don't know. People go back and forth on this. Um, It clearly is an Old Testament law and a New Testament benchmark. I give you a verse right in your study guide that shows that even Jesus was saying you need to do this, okay? But we don't know why 10%. The best explanation I've ever heard is this, okay? That 10 in the Bible is the number of testing. It's a number of testing. Work with me here. How many commandments are there? Ten. How many plagues were there in Egypt? Ten. Parable of the virgins. How many virgins were there? Ten. How many disciples are there? Well, no. Now, second service, like, 10. You guys good? <laughs> Too much Kool-Aid. You know how it goes. I um, Just messing with you. Okay, trying to say Ten is the number of testing. It's the best I can come I'm just telling you, it's the benchmark that the Bible gives. You go, and some of you are already doing it. You're, do, you're calculating it in your, in your brain. You're like, whoa, that's a chunk. Yeah, it's because you've never done it before. If you've been doing it for a while, you don't even think about it after a while. And then you start realizing it has nothing to do with percentage and everything to do with generosity. Bring the first 10% of your income to the... Storehouse. What's the storehouse? That's biblical language. Old Testament, it referred to the temple or the tabernacle. New Testament, it refers to your local church. This is tithing. Now, here's what I'm going to do for the next next 15 minutes. I'm going to tell you why I tithe. I'm going to make it personal. I'm going to tell you why I do it. And oh, by the way, reason number one is not because I'm a pastor, because I used to do it long before I was a pastor. But I'm going to give you the seven reasons why I tithe. And I want you to be open-minded. I want you to think this through for yourself, okay? Reason number one, jot this down. It's because it it makes a significant and lasting contribution in the kingdom of God. It makes a significant and lasting contribution in the kingdom of God. Luke 16 speaks of it. There are countless passages that speak to this effect. Two guys are shipwrecked on an island. They have no water, they have no food, they have no hope, no one knows where they are. One of them is frantic and he's worried, and he's concerned, he's like, We are gonna die. The other one's just sitting up against a palm tree, he's picking his teeth with a toothpick, he's just relaxing. The other guy goes, dude, why how can you be so relaxed? You know, we have no food, we have no water, we have no hope, no one knows where we're gonna where, where we are, we're gonna die. The guy leaning up against the palm tree says, I'm not concerned, man. I make a hundred grand a week. The guy goes, Who cares how much you make? No one knows where we are. We're shipwrecked on an island. And the guy's relaxing. and goes, no, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week, and I tithe. I guarantee you, my pastor will find us. (laughs) You know what? That's how some of us think. The church is is just about wanting our money. You know what? I'm sure, and I know that there are pastors and churches that give that idea. But the pastors I know, and the pastors of this church... I guarantee you that's not the main interest. Do you want to know why budget is important? Do you want to know why numbers is important? It's because people are important. It has not to do with cash. It has to do with lives that are changed. The more budget you have, the more ministries you could support. The more missionaries you could support. The more people you could influence for Jesus Christ. It's naive to think otherwise. And I'll tell you, the main reason I started tithing was this right here. Because not all of us can go be missionaries in Africa, but we can all help someone go there. It's the one first reason I gave, because it makes a lasting and a significant difference in the kingdom of God. Jesus says the main thing you should be using your finances for is to help people get to heaven. That's the main thing you should be using it for. Reason number two is because it strengthens my faith. It strengthens my face. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 29 is from the Living Bible and some of you freak out with the Living Bible uh, but when you look at the Hebrew that it, it, the implication is there. Look at what it says about tithing. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. To put God first in your life. It's not about money. It's not that God wants your money. He wants what your money represents and He knows and you know down deep He really doesn't have you unless He has your checkbook. Do not say that Jesus is the ruler of every part of my life if you are not obeying him in this area because you know it's not true. So don't play games. I've got to tell you, as a pastor, this is important for me. Some people have asked me, well, why don't you just save your tithe up and once every three, four months put it in? Because I need a reminder of this every single month. He's number one. He's above everything else. I do it because it strengthens my faith. The reality, I haven't said this in any other service because of time, but here's the reality. Some of you are bored as Christians. And it's not because you're sinning. You're just bored because you are not taking steps of faith. Everything is safe. I guarantee you, you try this. Watch what it does to your faith. The greatest step of faith I have ever taken in my life was not to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. That was easy for me. The biggest step of faith I ever took in my life was when I started to tithe. Oh my goodness, did I have to start trusting Jesus at that point? But isn't that what we want? Do you want safe Christianity or not? Do you want to live on the edge for Jesus or do you want safe Christianity? I tithe because it strengthens my faith. The Bible says so. The third reason, because it belongs to God. That's what the Bible says. You don't even have to ask the question, you don't even have to think it through. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, a tithe of everything from the land. Now remember, they're farmers. A tithe from everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, the prophet Malachi uses even stronger language. God is speaking, and in Malachi chapter 3, we read this, put it up on the screen. Will a man rob God, asks God. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob and you steal from me. What? What is he talking about? But you ask, how do we rob you? You steal from me in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, you whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Not 1%, not 3%, 10%. I know a pastor who was working at church during the week in his office, and a buddy of his that was in his discipleship group at church, drove down to church in his brand new BMW 5 Series, wanted to show him his brand new car and uh, he knew the pastor was in the cars they got out they revved the engine they look at all the gadgets they marveled at the technology of bmw and then the guy said to the pastor he said do, do, do you want to drive it it's so cool. you want to drive it the pastor said no nah, i don't worry about that that's all right he goes no no you could drive it and then the pastor said no no i i don't drive st- st- stolen cars he goes what are you talking about i paid for it cash and he says yeah i know god's cash He said, you know, because I'm your friend, I'm your pastor, and we're in a discipleship group, I know that for the past five months you haven't been honoring God in this area. And I just, I I can't do it, man. A couple months later, the same guy came back. He threw the pastor the keys, and he said, I just want you to know I've taken care of that problem we talked about a couple months ago. You can drive the car with a good conscience now. I don't know if I could ever say that, get that out of my mouth, but I will say this, and this just is me being real with you. The reality is that some of us may be driving our tithe. And that's not good. It's not smart. It's not spiritually mature. You know why I tithe? Because it belongs to God. I don't even, you don't have to think about it after a while. It belongs to Him. I don't think. Reason number four is because I want God's favor in my life. The very next verse in Malachi says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse... And then Jesus, uh, God says, test me in this. And if you do, I will pour out so much blessing on your life, you won't have enough room for it. A couple months ago, Sandy and I uh, took our little daughter, Julia, to go see Joshua and Jessica, the two older kids, in a play that they were performing at school. We got there super early, about 45 minutes early, because we wanted good seats. And uh, so we got there, and I'm like, you know, my my, my little Julia can't sit there for 45 minutes. So I leaned over to her, and I said, do you want to go kill some time? She said, what does that mean? She never heard about killing time. So I explained to her, you know, we're going to, you know, kind of waste it. And, you know, use it, do something. She goes, what are we going to do? I said, how about if I take you to the gas station a block away and i buy you some candy? She goes, yeah, let's kill some time, you know. So we went to the gas station and I said, I'll get you one, one, one candy. You can't get more than one candy. You know, how about if I get candy and crackers? No, one candy. How about candy and ice cream? No, one candy. I'll get you one candy. You know, so she looked up and up, down, up and down. And when she was done, she decided to get... Some Skittles, isn't life better with Skittles? It is really not the. And it's got to be the original Skittles, not the new sour kind. Okay, so she got she got some Skittles and and I let her open it in the van. So she opened it in the van as we were going back. She started eating her Skittles, you know. And we got back and there was still some time, so we were kind of standing in the back of the room. We saw Sandy, Mom, sitting up front. We were just standing there, and we was eating her Skittles. And I reached over, into her little you know bag. I took a Skittle, and I ate it. As soon as she realized what I had done, she looked at me and she said, no, stop it. People looked back like child abuse was going on. And I was kind of like, there's just about ready to be child abuse, if you could excuse me for a moment. But it was actually a great teachable moment because I pulled her aside and, you know, what had happened with my daughter, Julia, she forgot who bought the Skittles in the first place. She forgot, I am so loaded, I could buy enough Skittles so you could have a bath in them. And she forgot that if she finished them, because I love her and I'm her, heaven, her father, I would love to buy her more Skittles. And some of us have done the very same thing with our Heavenly Father. We've forgotten those things. You know what Jesus said? He said, your life is not in the abundance of, of the skittles that you have. The point is not to gain as many skittles as you can if it means that it damages your soul. I want God's favor. You want to know the best thing? Is that later on, after I had my little talk with her and explained to her about giving and sharing, halfway through the play, my daughter Julia um, leaned over and she whispered. But she whispered in one of those loud whispers. You ever have someone that loud whispers? You know? (laughs) It doesn't matter, they might as well just say it. She leaned over and she said, Dad, do you want some Skittles? Everybody was like, I'll have some. One of the reasons I give is because I want God's favor. I want God's favor. Another reason, uh, number five, is because I want treasure in heaven. Now, number four was how God blesses me on earth. Number five is how he blesses me in heaven. I don't know how this is going to work, to be honest with you. But the Bible says this, if you honor him in this area, something's going to happen in heaven for those that don't honor him in this area. I don't know how it works. Now, I don't want you to give just because you want to get something back from God. Don't do that. That's a horrible reason to give. But I want to mention it to you. I don't know if you get an an upgrade in your castle or something, but you get something. Okay? So I'm not going to say anything else about that. Let's move on. Number six reason that I give. That's what I'm going to spend some more time on. It's because it's an obedient act of worship. You know, the business world is about money. The church world is about ministry. The business world is about consumers. Church world is about worshipers. Offering time at the end of the service is not your opportunity to give a charitable contribution. It's your opportunity to worship God. And yet some of us, week after week, say we believe in God But when offering time comes around, we tell them to get lost. I'm going to do whatever I want with my money. I love you, and I love this church, and I love being your pastor. But I'll I'll be honest with you. When it comes to this area, and I'm giving reports with no names on it, but I'm giving reports about our church in this area, it breaks my heart. And there's a heaviness that comes over me, and there's a sadness that overwhelms my soul. 30% of church going Christians give nothing to their local church. They spend more on chewing gum and Starbucks than they do investing in the kingdom of God. And that's wrong. It's wrong. 70% of us give less than 2% of our income to God. During the Great Depression, people gave 3.3. The most recent study I've looked at says that the average church-growing Christian gives away 2.7% of their income. The average non-church, I don't believe in Jesus person, gives away 2.9%. For the first time since these surveys have been done, people outside the church give more than people inside the church. Doesn't this have to change at some point? Some of us who have grown up in church, we hear this, and like Teflon, we let it bounce right off of us. We wonder, when is he going to be done? I got reasons. When is the time when we stop making excuses? Because that's really what it is. It's an excuse. If that's how I feel about it, imagine how your Heavenly Father feels about it. He spends more time talking about money in the Bible than he does heaven, hell, prayer, faith combined. You know why? Reason number seven why I give. Because I don't want to be an economic atheist. I don't want to say one thing about God but then live a completely different way when it comes to my finances. The end of the story of the rich young ruler goes like this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know why he said that? He said that because money is the number one competitor for our, for our, our, our hearts. It's the number one competitor. That's why he spent so much time talking about finances. And I do not want to be one of those people. I don't want to be one of those people. Here's how we're going to end, and you're going to have to use your maturity, and you're going to have to figure out um, what to do here. I want you to end uh, and and apply this message based upon what David does in 2 Samuel 24. In 2 Samuel 24, David um, wants to sacrifice an offering to the Lord, and he's heading to this one guy, and he's going to buy his land And he's going to, um, you know, uh, offer a sacrifice there. And as he's going there, this guy who owns the land, his name is Aruna. he meets him. And he says, king, what do you want? He says, I want your land, and I'm going to sacrifice there. And the guy goes, you're the king, I'll give you the land, you don't have to buy it. I'll give you the goats, and I'll give you the bulls, and you can do whatever you want with them, right? And I'll give it to you for free. And David says this, and this is the attitude that I want you to have. King David replied to Aruna. No, I insist on paying for the land. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That's what I want you to do. The realities that some of us give as long as it doesn't affect our standard of living. I'll give, but I I I want the ride I want. I'll give, but I want to live in the neighborhood I want. I'll give, but I want the kind of vacation I want. As long as it doesn't affect my standard of living, then I'll give. And I want you to think different. I want you, like King David, to say, I'm not going to give offerings that cost me nothing. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to stretch. So you say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. For the, for the 30% of us that are giving nothing, it's time for you to step up. You need to start putting $200 a month in. It's time to step up. It's time to put your faith where your money, your, your money, where your faith is. It may be a little bit less for one or a little bit more, but if you're giving nothing, take a step. Take a step. If you're, if you're one of the ones that's giving 2%, double it. You're not even that close to 10%. You're not even half of where you need to be. But take a step. If you're already tithing, I want you to think a little. I want you to do two things. One, I want you to help me. Because some people still don't believe me. They still think I have ulterior motives. I need you to help me speak up. Tell people that this really does work. Tell them in your small group. Tell them at coffee hour, you know, this really works. Because they don't believe me, but they'll believe you. And if you're already tithing, I want you to think completely different. Instead of the 10%, I want you to think generosity. Generosity. I know some very wealthy people who have started to think different and said, you know what? I don't need 90% to live on. You know what? I could give away 20% and they've started to do that. I know someone who's given away 40% of their income and living on 60 do because I don't, I don't need the rest. Whatever it is that you need to do, I want you to take a step of faith. I want you to stretch. I want you to say like King David, I'm not going to give an offering to God that costs me nothing. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, the reality is that for some of us, this is a difficult subject. Father, for me, it's a difficult subject because I think about a kid that's going off to college and I got that bill and I got a red car that's about ready to die and I need another car and I got things going on at the house. I got to put a new fence in and I can't help it, God. I just keep thinking about all these bills and things I got to pay and I'm already thin. And others of us are thinking, you know, I've been stretched during these last four or five years with the economy the way it's been and the job the way it's been. But Father, you have examples for us in your word. First Kings seventeen, when you tell the widow who has enough to make one sandwich, and that's it, and the prophet Elijah says to her, Give to God first, anyway. Because it's a faith thing. It's not really a money thing. It's a, it's a heart thing, God. And I'm starting to get it. We're starting to understand. Father, for those of us who have heard a message like this one over and over and over again, Father, I pray that today it would be different. I pray that it would be different. Whatever decision we make, Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people that sacrifice for you, that have a bigger perspective on what it means to be followers of yours, that we've been blessed with such incredible wealth in this country that we would take a moment and have the maturity look beyond our borders. See the people that are lost without you, the people that are hungry without food. Father, we pray all these things and thank you for what you've taught us this morning. In Jesus' name.
0: It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ.